We're going to be again in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And since we are blessed to have some people here uh, with us in the building, I want to invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. And even for you who are watching uh, on, on stream there, that uh, you're welcome to stand as we read God's Word together. So Genesis chapter 11, <clears throat> verses 1 through 9. Hear what's recorded by Moses. It says, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. <clears throat> As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. And then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it's called Babylon. Some of your translations will say Babel. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word and seek to unpack this passage of scripture, I pray that you would... Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, I ask that you would give me grace because I understand the weight of the conversation that we're going to have. I understand the depth to which we will talk about it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give me grace to just be clear that I would speak your words and not mine, and that your people would hear and be spurred on. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. <clears throat> well, again, welcome. Welcome to those of you who are here. Welcome to those of you who are watching. If you're visiting either on stream or here in person, my name is uh, Michael Matala. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor of Newbury Church. And this morning, uh, we are continuing on in our series entitled Race, Justice, and the Cross. Race, Justice, and the Cross. And we began last week kind of exploring this idea of made in the image of God. And we began somewhat laying a foundation for our discussion. And in our sermon last week, as we dove into Psalm chapter 139, we talked about four key truths we find there in terms of understanding human beings being made in the image of God. And so first, we talked about how all mankind is made in the image of God. Just, just as a base level truth that all mankind is made in the image of God of God. And that being made in the image of God is not simply a quality we possess, but rather it describes what we are. We are image bearers. Therefore, our intrinsic worth and value is dictated by the image we bear. It's not dictated by what we do. But second, we talked about how recognizing the image of God is an act of worship. That when we recognize the image of God imprinted on every human being, God receives glory and honor. 
And third, we talked about the fact that the image of God spans a lifetime. We saw how even in our text, there is evidence that we have to understand the image bearer reality beginning at the moment of conception. But it doesn't stop once once a human is born, that the image of God spans a lifetime. So it begins at conception and it, it runs all the way until an individual breathes their last breath. And finally, we talked a little about how we need to think like the one whose image we are created in. We reflected on the fact that even though we are tainted by sin, even though we have rebelled, God still loves us. And God's heart toward us is one of compassion and mercy and kindness. Therefore, as we engage with other image bearers, we we have to have hearts of love and compassion and mercy and kindness, longing to see people come to salvation. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to continue our conversation on being made in the image of God. But I, but I want to come at it from a little different angle. And I know that this sermon, in some ways, will, will even feel just structurally a little different than from the sermons that you've, you've heard from me. I mean, normally we try to walk through some specific points. And I have some specific points, but they're going to be a little bit more towards the tail end of this. Because there's just some stuff we have to unpack here at the front end. But, but what I want to do is... is is continue this conversation, and I've titled this morning's sermon, Made in the Image of God, Part 2, Dispelling the Myth of Race. Made in the Image of God, Part 2, Dispelling the Myth of Race. And so before we really dive in and start to tackle that, let me just say something about this series here as a whole. I know that last week I shared a little bit with you about why we're doing this series. And, and in some sense, it was somewhat vague. I'm aware of that. I mentioned how, how our country is having conversations about the issue of race and racial injustice and racism, and, and it's forced, in some ways, our country's being forced to reckon with systems of oppression that have existed since its foundation. And I mentioned that things are happening in our country, but was honest and saying, I don't, I don't know what that's going to lead to. I, I don't think it will go back to how it was, but I don't know what it's moving towards. But I'm sure that changes are coming. But we talked a little bit about the fact that there are lines that are being drawn, but nevertheless, at the end of the day, what we want to hear from more than anything is, well done, good and faithful servant. Not that we are this or that we are that, but we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But, but I want to speak a little bit more on kind of why this series right now. Uh, because even after last week, I got a lot of feedback about it. And typically, I, I don't, this is going to sound kind of weird, I, I don't let feedback shape my sermons too much. I mean, obviously, if I'm wrong, I want that to shape my sermon, right? If I'm saying something heretical, I want you to correct me so I can correct it. But, but I don't necessarily preach sermons based off of what people say the week before. That's usually a bad look because then people start thinking you're just preaching about them. And that's it's not always a great thing. But, but I did read, receive quite a bit of feedback and it wasn't particularly about the message. It wasn't about anything I said about the image of God. And I praise God for that because I don't think I said anything wrong. But, but I received a lot of feedback. It wasn't negative. It wasn't like people were coming after me. But a lot of feedback regarding why we are even doing this sermon. And just to be transparent with you, especially those of you who, who know New Breed, you know, it wasn't just white members 
it wasn't just black members. It was a good representation of the body of just why are we doing this series right now? And it wasn't because people didn't think that it was important. It was because by and large, they kind of said, we as a church have been faithful to talk about this. It comes up in terms of how we apply the gospel. We talk about unity in the midst of diversity. It's not something that's new to us. And so let me just kind of say this by way of an introduction. As we work through this series, I want you to know that my concern is not necessarily with convincing the body of new breed about the validity of what we are talking about. I'm not preaching this as if the body of new breed is getting all of this wrong. And so I'm correcting false things that people have. Now, I'm not going to be naive and to say that there aren't. I mean, none of us have made it. Amen. And so we might not get everything right. But by and large, I, I'm not tackling these subjects as if they're new to us. Spe- specifically in terms of what the Bible says. I don't think for a moment... Right, that by me preaching this series, that I'm putting my job on the line because this is something that new breed's not ready to hear. I don't, I don't think that. And sadly, that's the case for some pastors. I've had conversations with pastors in the last few weeks that are honest about the fact that if they dive as deep into some of this stuff as they want to, they're afraid that they're not going to have a job. And that breaks my heart. But not for a moment have I feared that me talking about this is somehow going to push you to the point of like, this dude, he just can't be our pastor. I don't think that's the case. I think we are very much in this grand conversation on the same page, and I would argue standing on Scripture. And again, sure, we may differ on some of the nuances of it. That, that's okay. But, but in terms of kind of these, these overarching ideas of, of, of race, of justice, of the cross, I don't think that there's a huge spectrum of disagreement within Newbury. And again, I could be wrong, but I don't perceive that to be the case just from knowing most of you well and having conversations with you. So, so what I want to do at the very beginning is just share and, and just kind of real honesty my twofold purpose in this series at this time, for this series at this time, genuinely why I believe that God pushed me in the direction of not jumping into biblical friendship like we're going to do, but that he just impressed on my heart that now is the time to have this conversation. And there are two main reasons. First, I think more than ever, there needs to be people with conviction and biblical truth and honesty in the conversation the world is having. Not just having the conversation in the church among those who agree with you. There needs to be people of conviction and biblical truth and honesty in the conversation that the world is, ha- is having. And so my prayer throughout this series has not ultimately been that you will understand new truths. I mean, I'm praying for that, especially if there are things that you did not know from Scripture. But my prayer, more than anything, has been that the issues we talk about in here, that each and every one of you will intentionally find avenues and opportunities to share these truths in your sphere of influence out there. And I said that very carefully, in your sphere of influence. 
Because God has placed people around you that need to hear and know the truth of his word. Not just about this issue, the truth of his word in general. And so my prayer has been that that what we talk about here will be filtered throughout our city and our community and our families by you. Because let's call it what it is. Most of the people in your sphere of influence aren't here or watching on, on their computer. And so whether that be offering hope to someone who is hurting or even correcting false ideas and arguments that are being made, we need to be in this season salt and light wherever God has placed us. There is never a season where Christians should be invisible. But in this season, it is especially true that we be visible in our communities, in our sphere of influences, speaking the truth of God's word into a very, very broken world because the truth is brothers and sisters society is offering solutions some of them are good some of them are bad but none of them if they are not grounded in the truth of God's word will have any eternal value whatsoever and we the saints have the inspired truth of God that is profitable for teaching, for rebuking. It is profitable for correction and training in righteousness. We have something to say. We we know the truth. But here's the second reason. And I just realized I didn't start my timer, so... (laughs) Good luck, brothers and sisters. Here's the second reason for this series. I'm going to preach it all, though. Don't worry. No, in all seriousness, this, this is the second reason for this series. And again, I'm, just, I'm trying to bear my heart and be honest with you. I am concerned about us as a body. I'm concerned about what we are hearing and listening to and the toll that it may unknowingly be taking on us. Because brothers and sisters, the world is telling you what to think. And as we listen more and more to the world, even if we deny the truths, their truths that they are presenting, the more we listen, we will likely find our hope diminish little by little because the world has no real hope to offer. I was talking to a brother about this this week, a brother here in the church, and I asked him for permission to share this. I actually emailed him this section of my sermon because I didn't want to misstate or misrepresent anything that we talked about. And he gave me permission to share it. I'm not going to tell you who, but a brother in, in, in our body. And he was just honest sharing with me how hopeless he is as he looks at the world right now. Just a real sense of hopelessness. And so as we began to talk, I asked him, I said, you know, help me understand what do you mean when you say look at the world? Because that seems to be what's causing some hopelessness. What do you mean when you say look at the world? And and he told me, he said, you know, every time I turn on the TV, every time I read Facebook, every time I interact with my friends who are not believers and even some who are believers, sadly, 
He says every time he considers what is going on and the solutions and recommendations being made, there just seems to be this cloud of hopelessness. And the more I talked with him, the more it became evident to me that I needed to remind him of something and that I want to remind you of. You need to know, brothers and sisters, that every time you turn on your TV, I don't care what you watch, Fox News, CSN, MSNBC, WDRB, WLKY, BBC, I don't care. Every time you turn on Facebook and scroll through posts, every time you click that article and you open it and you read it, you are not making an inconsequential decision. You have to understand that you are not making an inconsequential decision. You are willingly choosing to engage in spiritual warfare. You are willingly choosing to engage in spiritual warfare. The problem is we don't often think of it like this, and so we're not ready. When we turn on the TV, how many of us are thinking, I am going to engage in spiritual warfare with the thoughts and ideas that are trying to take me captive right now. Every time you open Facebook or Twitter, I guess even Instagram, every time you click on this blog post or that blog post or read this or that, you are willingly entering into spiritual warfare. And I'm not here to tell you don't enter into spiritual warfare, not as a collective group. Now, some of you, if we talked, I would tell stop engaging in that kind of spiritual warfare because you're not ready. But what I am trying to get you to see is that we have to be so careful because we are not making inconsequential acts. That's why one of the main arenas of spiritual warfare that the Bible speaks of, where spiritual warfare is taking place, where it's being fought, one of the main arenas is your mind. Which is why the Bible calls us to take every thought captive. Every thought captive. And the world is telling us a lot right now in terms of how we should think. How we should act as we consider racial injustices that are prevalent in people and systems that make up this country's and others. I'm not denying that. You know me. I believe that. The world is telling you how to think and act. But what we have to be cautious to do is to filter what we are hearing through the truth that God has told us. And what that means is that we have to be entering into seasons and moments where we are filling our mind with the truth of Scripture as much, if not more, than we are filling our mind with all the other stuff. One of the, great, one of the, the greatest difficulties for me as a pastor, I've been a pastor for 2008, right? 10, around there, 12 years. So I'm, I was looking at my parents, and apparently they don't know. Um, I mean, it's been a, at least a decade. And what has made it particularly difficult in this day and age is the fact that my voice as your pastor and proclaiming the truth of God's word to you, you will never have as much access to me as you have to the world. And if we are not guarding how much of the world we are letting in in relation to how much of the word of God, and it's not just my voice, but faithful teaching and exposition of the scripture and, 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 of, and of worship and of fixing our eyes on Jesus. If we are not careful 
to guard how much we are taking in, even unknowingly to us, we will find that we'll look back and say, man, my hope has been diminishing little by little, day by day. We have to filter what we are hearing through the truth that God has told us. And in, in moments where the voice is, where the truth of God is being drowned out by the voices of this world, we have to stop listening to the voice of that, the world in those moments. I believe that God has something to say about this. I said that last week. God has something to say about the issues that we are facing in this country. God has something to say about the state of our country. And racial injustice and disparities and, and, and all injustices and oppression. The Bible has something to say. And as I said, just trying to be transparent, and I hope you know my heart because I love you, I'm concerned about us. I am concerned that the truth of Scripture will be drowned out by a multitude of other voices. And so with the God-given platform that I have, I want to speak truth from the Word of God into this to at least provide something in the midst of a world that is screaming at you. I want us to consider the Word of God. So with that somewhat long introduction, I want us to consider this idea of made in the image of God dispelling the myth of race. Not because I, don't, I think you don't know some of this. Because I want to remind you of the truth. Now, as you may have gleaned from the title, I'm just going to jump right in because we've been going for a minute. It's important for us to understand out at the outset of our conversation that the concept of race is a myth. The concept of race is a myth. It's been said many ways. I tried to trace the quote back to where I first heard it, but I couldn't because so many people have said it now. But I think it's true that race, this idea of race is a biological fiction, but a social reality. It is a biological fiction, but a social reality. So here's what I mean. There is no evidence, none whatsoever, to support the claim that races of people are biologically different. That there is a distinguishing biological trait that makes multiple races. In all actuality, when you start to trace this idea of race back, you start to see that the idea of race is actually a relatively new concept, right? One, one author notes this. this. This isn't even a Christian author, but they're right. They said the idea of race originated from anthropologists and philosophers in the 18th century who used geographical location and phenotypic traits like skin color to place people into different racial groupings. That not only formed the notion that there are separate racial types, but also fueled the idea that these differences had a biological basis. Now, notice what, what she writes. This is so interesting, especially coming from an unbeliever. She writes that that flawed principle laid the groundwork for the belief that some races were superior to others, creating global power imbalances, global power imbalances that benefited white Europeans over other groups. Now, I don't think I have to tell you with which anthropologists and philosophers came up with the idea of the race in the, in the 18th century, do I? Well, it was those that benefited from it. Thank you, Pastor. And I just want to pause there for a minute. Say, Brothers and sisters, worldviews matter. 
How you see the world has implications. So you might think, well, it's rather inconsequential whether you agree if race is a biological fiction or not because it is a societal reality. It's like, no, it's not because how you view the world plays itself out in how you live in the world. Worldviews matter. So as people created these categories of race to distinguish people, what they created were power structures that benefited Europeans and oppressed others. Race is a biological fiction. It is not real. But it is a social reality. Meaning, we have to recognize that our world often thinks in these made-up categories. Therefore, we speak in categories that the world understands. I have no problem talking about racial justice, even though I understand that race is a biological fiction. I mean, the title of the series is Race justice and the cross. I don't mind talking in those categories because the world thinks in those categories, but we have to at least understand what it is that we're saying. And what's interesting is that the Bible actually supports the truth, and I would say first declared the truth, that there are not multiple races of people. You see that in Acts 17, 26. From one man, he made every nationality to live over the whole earth. And has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. From one man, he has made every nationality. Human beings share the same genetic heritage. That's a really interesting fact when you start to press into it. That all of humanity shares the same genetic heritage. What's mind-blowing is this. Let me share you this quote. This comes from the National Institute of General Medical Science. And it notes this, that the human genome is mostly the same in all people. But there are variations across the genome. There are variations, but listen to this. The genetic variation accounts for about 0.001% of each person's DNA and contributes to differences in appearance and health. What makes you different the texture of your hair, the color of your skin is 0.001% of your genetic heritage. The rest is the same. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. How our God has made us this one race of people. Now you may be thinking at this point, well, if race is a fiction... If it's not biologically true, then how do we account for the fact that people are different? There are different cultures, there are different skin tones, there are different traits. We are different. We're not denying that. Well, these aren't actually racial differences. The more helpful category is one of ethnicity. Is one of ethnicity. And the Bible speaks about ethnicity all throughout its pages. Now, You may be thinking at this point, because even as I was writing the sermon, trying to figure out where the Lord was taking this, I said, well, why does the language matter that much? Why why, why does it matter if we say race or ethnicity? Why, Why does distinguishing between race and ethnicity matter, especially for us as believers in the conversations that we need to have with the world? Well, there are two reasons why I think that this distinction is very important. By first, by thinking in terms of ethnicity... We are combating the idea that people are fundamentally different based on the color of their skin. 
So in essence, we are combating a false worldview. Remember, like I said a moment ago, worldviews matter. And if people are not fundamentally different, then it is wrong and sinful to fail to recognize the image of God imprinted on people who are different than you. At least in appearance. But here's the second reason, and this is where we're going to plant ourselves for a minute. As we begin to understand a little better why we have different ethnicities, we will begin to actually appreciate the image of God imprinted on a diverse humanity. So right, as we begin to think in terms of ethnicity, because I said the Bible doesn't really talk about race because it's a biological fiction, but the Bible talks about ethnicity all throughout. And so when we think in terms of ethnicity, again, the Bible has something to say about that. And so we will begin to appreciate the image of God imprinted on diverse humanity. It will force us, hear me, it will force us to battle the temptation of thinking too highly of ourselves and degrading and devaluing those that are ethnically different than us. If we understand ethnicity from a biblical perspective. And in Genesis 11, Genesis 11 helps us to understand some of this. In Genesis 11, we see the beginning of the major ethnic differences we see today, and we get a glimpse as to why we are ethnically different. So what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to look at Genesis 11. And I've just broken Genesis 11, 1 through 9, into three simple headings. The problem, the, or the response, and the restoration. The problem, the response, and the restoration. And as we unpack this, I want to try to not only help you understand Genesis 11, but help us view our world in light of what we learn in Genesis 11. Fair? You with me? Okay. It's like I said last week, y'all are here. Somebody's got to talk back to me now. All right. So here's the first, the problem. The problem. <clears throat> Pick up again uh, hopefully you're still at Genesis 11. Pick up again in verse 1 there. <clears throat> it says, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and they settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. In verse 4, and they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. So as Genesis 11 begins, we are forced to kind of see the reality that at this time, this is, this is a few hundred years after the flood, there is one collective group of people on the earth. There is one ethnic identity on the earth. They are together ethnically the same. And a problem comes as a result of that. Did you catch the problem there in verse 4? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. You see, the problem was this. A pride centered around a collective uniformity 
that led to idolatry. I'm just going to give you a heads up. You're going to want to write that down. A pride centered around a collective uniformity that leads to idolatry. So these people in Genesis 11, right, who are all ethnically the same, they wanted to boast in their greatness. So you have to understand kind of the cultural context. In the ancient times, when this, when this was occurring, it was believed that, God, that gods lived in places on high, right? The top of a mountain, the top of a hill, that God lived up in the sky, that they were in elevated, physically elevated positions over the people of the earth. So, so when they say... Let us build a tower to the sky. They are basically saying that they believe collectively that they deserve to be among the gods. They're saying that we are so great, we should be counted among them. And this, brothers and sisters, is idolatry. It is sin. And again, it is a pride centered around a collective uniformity that leads to idolatry. And church, what we see in our world today is a pride centered around a collective, a collective uniformity that has led to idolatry. Church, if you want a modern day example of the Tower of Babel, you see it in white supremacy that has existed in our country and still exists since its founding. The core of the heinousness of white supremacy is it is a pride centered around a collective uniformity that has led to idolatry. You see it in America. And church, you've heard me say this. This isn't new. I, I know the talking points. I know that people want to argue that this nation is a Christian nation. But when you look at its founding, it is closer to the Tower of Babel than it is the cross. It was Europeans wanting to make a name for themselves on their terms in their own place. The difference between Genesis 11... And America is that in Genesis 11, they at least attempted to build the tower with their own hands. In America, we tried to build it on the back of slaves. But it's still the Tower of Babel. I just want to throw this in there. I don't hate America. I really don't. Honestly. I'm, I am glad I live in this. The ideals of this nation pinned on paper are beautiful. The problem hasn't been the ideals. The problem has been the implementation of it. I love America. I like what the, the hip-hop artist propaganda says. Right? I don't hate America. I just think she keep her promises. If we're going to say justice for all, then it has to be justice for all. If all men are created equal, then all men have to be created equal. I, I, I love what this could be. The implementation's been a little sinful, Amen. But even in our country today, and not just our country, all throughout this world, we still see a pride centered around a collective uniformity that leads to idolatry. And the problem, hear me, with worshiping yourself as an individual or a collective group that you are a part of is that you will inevitably begin to see everyone else as less. Less. 
always. If you think that you are a god and you are worshiping yourself, you will not worship people that are not like you. You will not value people that are not like you. You will inevitably ignore the image of God imprinted on others. And we see that in our country. That's the sad reality of the state that we are in. See, last week we talked a little bit about how intrinsic worth and value is not merely determined by what we do. And there are a lot of people in this country and in this world who want to value a person solely based off what they do. And that's wrong. But it's even more heinous when someone doesn't have to do anything. They just look different than you. And you devalue and degrade the image of God that is imprinted on them. And that's what is happening in our country. And it is sin. And it is wrong. And Christians should vehemently oppose it. But that is why, and I want to make this claim, and it's important. That is why ethnocentrism... Right? So being so centered on your ethnicity, of valuing your ethnicity above anybody else's, that is why ethnocentrism, hear me, in any form, in any form, will inevitably, inevitably lead to idolatry. This is not just for white people. Ethnocentrism in any form will inevitably lead to idolatry. Therefore, the degrading and devaluing of the image of God imprinted on people that are different than you. And I said any form, whether it be white supremacy and the alt-right or the new Black Panther Party. Ethnocentrism in any form will inevitably lead to idolatry and sin. So this was the problem. This was the problem of Babel. A pride centered around a collective uniformity that led to idolatry. But now I want you to notice the response, specifically the response of God. The response, and look beginning in verse 5. It says, then the Lord came down. Oh, I wish I had time to dive into that. Because can we just talk about the irony of that statement right there? Then the Lord came down. Because where was man trying to get? Hey, they couldn't make it. <laughs> We're not gods. We're not as great as we think we are. We try so desperately to get to God. But if God doesn't meet us, we don't encounter him. <laughs> They're trying to build this tower. And those words just, they're powerful. Then the Lord came down. You can flesh that out on your own. I was just giving you the stepping stones. It says the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And then the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. And this is important. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babel. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So, so I want you to see this. This is so important as we, we seek to unpack Genesis 11. What God is doing in His judgment is He is fighting for the holiness of his people by removing the temptation. 
in his judgment, God is fighting for the holiness of his people by removing the temptation. Again, this is so important. God's action here is a means of fighting for the holiness of his people by removing the temptation. What was the temptation? A pride centered around a collective uniformity that leads to idolatry. So check this out. This is beautiful. The way God fights for the holiness of his people, of his creation, is by diversifying them. Is by diversifying them. God confuses their language and he scatters them throughout the earth. Now, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't really explain kind of why we look different and why people have different skin tones and cultures and textures of hair. And how did that create all of that? It doesn't explain it. Well, it actually does explain it because people were now scattered and isolated in smaller groups. And one thing we know, even scientifically, because this is how great our God is is that genetic isolation leads to dominant traits, such as skin color, dominant facial features, and dominant physical structure taking root in a particular people, and therefore, you start to see homogenous communities in specific locations. Not to mention that humans, God has made us so intricate that we adapt to environmental changes over time. There is a reason that people groups located closer to the equator have darker skin. There is a reason that people that are in cooler populations have lighter skin. Because through smaller groups and genetic isolation, we have adapted traits that we need to survive. Because God has hardwired us to do it. So it does explain why we are ethnically different. But what I want you to see more than anything, and we can press into the science of that, I almost got bogged down with it because it's interesting to me. But what I want you to know is that this act of God, in essence, created what we know as different ethnic categories, all centered, hear me, all centered around his desire to promote holiness among people made in his image. So track with me here. The problem in Babel was uniformity that led to idolatry. So God's response is to promote holiness through diversity. To promote holiness through diversity. And this leads us to the reality. And we have to make this observation If that's the case, then ethnocentrism, right? The elevation of your ethnicity over over others and everything else, right? Being the pinnacle of how you see yourself. It is polar opposite. It is the polar opposite of holiness. And church, we have to fight any temptation we are presented with for an ethnocentric worldview. Because it is through diversity where God has ordained holiness to be sought after. So to bring this a little bit into our cultural conversation, it is a reminder to us that as we gaze at different ethnicities around us in our city, in our state, in our community, in our country, 
it is a reminder that this diversity reflects God's desire for his people to be holy. It is a reminder that all of these individuals, regardless of their, regardless of their ethnic traits, are made in the image of God. And when the image of God is devalued or overlooked in someone because of their skin, when people's value and worth is determined based off the color of their skin, it should be appalling to us as believers. Appalling to us as believers. Because it is diminishing God's beautiful work of fighting for holiness among his creation. It's a return to Babel. But not only should it appall us, it is something we should actively seek to rebuke and correct with the truth of God's word whenever we have the chance. Because the call of a Christian is not to be appalled in the comforts of your home. The call of a Christian is to fight for the kingdom to be made known on this earth. And it will force you, if you genuinely believe this, it will force you to engage with those who are diminishing the image of God and the work of our God in promoting holiness among his creation. That's why we declare Black Lives Matter. Because we, when we see individuals who are actively being devalued, degraded, where the image of God is being ignored, we should fight to actively affirm the dignity and worth of every image bearer. Again, that's why I say Black Lives Matter. To affirm the dignity and worth in the image of God in a people that is a people group that it is so often being devalued and degraded in in our country. But here's the final thing that I want you to see and this is beautiful. It's the restoration. The restoration. So we've seen the problem, we've seen the response and now I want to show you the restoration. And it's encouraging. But in order for us to see the, res the restoration, we actually have to look at a few other passages. You're welcome to turn there if you want, or you can just listen. The first one's in Zephaniah. So in Zephaniah 3.9, some of you are like, I've never looked at Zephaniah in my life. Well, just write the reference down, find it later. But here's what it says in Zephaniah 3.9. Right? This, is, this is as God is promising to restore his people who are in the midst of sin and rebellion. Okay? So God is promising to, to bring restoration. And, and, and God says this through, through Zephaniah in Zephaniah 3.9. God says, For I will then restore pure speech to the, peoples that, to the people so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with a single purpose. God in His restoration promises, For I will restore pure speech to the peoples so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with a single purpose. So God promised, again, through the prophet Zephaniah, that when He restored what sin had broken, that part of that restoration would be pure speech. This is a direct correlation to Babel. That God would restore pure speech. He says the reason he will restore speech is so that all of them, that's all of the people of the earth, may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. 
So when the Lord restores, he will do so providing a means for people to serve him with a united purpose. So it seems as if God will bring back together those who were scattered and whose languages were confused. And so your first thought might be, well, well, wouldn't that mean then a removal of ethnicities if God is going to restore that? Well, that goes to how we interpret first Babel and then what we see in the cross because the problem was not the diverse ethnicities. The problem was a pride centered around this uniformity, a collective uniformity that led to idolatry. But God answers that question for us because we see this promise fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. This is after Christ has died and raised from the dead and now there is hope and there is salvation and people believed in him. We see this restoration. We see Zephaniah 3.9 come to fruition in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit descends and the people speak in tongues. Because Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, it says, Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. Pause. Every nation under heaven. A recognition of ethnicity. Then it says, When the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. I thought it was going to be restored, but here they're speaking in their own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't these all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? But I don't want you to miss this because so often we skip this. But this is so powerful because then Luke records Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, in Pontus, in Asia, or in Asia, sorry, in Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in their own tongues. And they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What it means is that God has restored that which has been broken and in the midst of that he does it through a diverse people. I love this, that when God restores what sin has broken, diversity is still on full display. God wants to make it a point that this was a diverse people. And again, notice all those different places that are mentioned, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, in Pontus, in Asia, in Phrygia, in Pamphylia, in Egypt, in the parts of of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts. It had Cretans, it had Arabs. And they were all declaring the magnificent acts of God in their own tongues. Ultimately, God's, what this shows us is that God's goal in restoration was not to bring back a uniformity, but unity in the midst of diversity, a unity of, in praise uh, among a diverse people, a unity of purpose among, uh, amongst a diverse people. It was not a removal of ethnic identity. That's why it's, it's somewhat wrong and can even be appalling when some Christians want to argue that in Christ we don't see ethnic distinctions anymore. God did. God saw them. God values them. It was in the midst of diversity that God brought about unity of purpose and praise for His great name. 
But here's, the, here's another great part. And, and Lance didn't know this. He stole it from me this morning when he did the call to worship. We see, look at God, right? We see this in its complete fulfillment in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. And after this, this is John writing, he's having a vision of eternity. He says, after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, what needed to be restored was not a uniform people. What needed to be restored was a proper view of God's glory and His worth. And that was not hindered by diversity. Rather, in God's ordained plan, it flourished in the midst of it. And all of this possible because of what Christ has done. It was the result of the gospel changing lives and purposes. I mean, we know the message of the gospel, right? That's what the gospel does. It changes people. One thing that we all have in common is that we are rebellious by nature. We are born in sin. We are born elevating ourselves in different ways. We are born worshiping ourselves and other wrong things. We have rebelled against God. Just like they did at the Tower of Babel. And yet God in His kindness doesn't destroy us. Rather, He seeks to save. And He sent Jesus who lived on this cross. And he, or lived on, he lived on this world and He died on the cross in our place. And God punished Him for our sin. God paid. The payment for our sin was paid in the finished work of Jesus. He died in our place. He was buried and raised from the dead. And we are invited to be restored back to God and restored to one another, Ephesians 2, through what Christ has done. And so when we begin to live out the gospel reality, we'll see that we we are united in our purpose to make much of God. We are united to praise His great name. And we are united even though we are diverse. Brothers and sisters, when we believe the gospel, when we genuinely believe it, when we internalize it, when we dwell on it, we will see that God is great and realize that we are not. And this will allow us to walk in right fellowship with God, seeing Him properly, but it will also allow us to walk in right fellowship with one another, seeing others correctly. Because it's hard to be ethnocentric when I realize that I am a wretched sinner that deserves death and hell. The gospel humbles us. The gospel should break us, but the gospel allows us to walk in right fellowship with God and others. Understanding that genuine unity is centered around a new purpose in Christ Jesus. So let me try to bring this thing home. I know we've gone for a little while. As I close, these aren't other three points. These are quick. Just going to boom, boom, boom. Let me offer you what I hope to be a few practical takeaways from this. And what do you do with this? Well, here's the first thing. Fight the temptation 
of pride centered around a collective uniformity that leads to idolatry. Fight the temptation of pride centered around a collective uniformity that leads to idolatry. Fight it. Fight it. Listen, brothers and sisters, as I mentioned earlier, we have not made it. And we would be foolish to think that we cannot be tempted to fall back into our babble ways and to begin to boast in ourselves and people who are like us and in so doing begin to devalue and degrade other image bearers. Fight the temptation that will come to have this pride in a collective uniformity that will lead to idolatry. And a great way to fight it is by daily reminding yourself of what Christ has done for you and who you actually are. Remind yourself that you are a sinner who has and will always desperately need salvation and that salvation is realized in Christ and Christ alone. Not in you. Not in people who look like you in Jesus. But second, fight to value and make much of Jesus in diverse relationships. Fight to value and make much of Jesus in diverse relationships because remember, it was in diversity by which God was fight, through which God was fighting for the holiness of his people. So we, we should want to be in diverse relationships and friendships. And that will also guard us by the grace of God from falling into ethnocentric traps. Here's the third kind of takeaway. Well, third takeaway, not kind of, third takeaway. Hear me clearly. Righteously, not worldly, righteously oppose anyone or anything that devalues or degrades the intrinsic worth and dignity of an image bearer. Righteously oppose anyone or anything that devalues or degrades the intrinsic worth and dignity of image bearers. That's unilateral. That's across the board. Because though, though it is primarily seen in our culture right now as a devaluing of black and brown bodies, there will be a temptation to devalue white bodies. There will be temptations across the board to devalue and degrade the image of God in those that God has created. And so righteously oppose anyone or anything that devalues or degrades the intrinsic worth and dignity of image bearers. Here's the final thing I want to leave you with. Find hope. Oh, please hear me on this. Even if you just kind of tuned out, maybe you heard the problem and nothing else, then, then listen again. Find hope in the fact that one day all traces of the Tower of Babel will be gone. Find hope in the fact that one day all traces of the problem of Babel will be gone. There is no lasting hope in this world. But this world is not our home. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We have hope. And it's not in this world, but this world needs it. One day, all traces 
of the problem of Babel will be gone. Praise God. Heavenly Father. God, help us to think like you. Help us to to value the salvation that we have received in Christ Jesus and walk, genuinely walk with a new purpose and a new perspective, Lord. Fighting for holiness, valuing those that are made in your image of being salt and light on this earth, God. And please, Lord, guard our hearts and our minds during this season. Guard us. Guard us from the lies of Satan that he desperately wants us to believe. Because, Lord, we know that Satan's not trying to convince the world. He's got them. His focus is on us as we try to fight for righteousness and holiness and biblical truth and justice in the midst of a broken world. So, Lord, guard us, protect us, help us to to lean into the Spirit and to listen to His sweet voice as He fights to protect us. To keep us from stumbling and falling away. God, give us grace. God, and in those moments when we are so weak, remind us that you don't need us to be strong. God, it's in our weakness that your strength is perfected. And we believe, God, that one day, One day, all traces of the problem of Babel will be gone. And we know that to be true because we know on the cross you already won the victory. So give us grace as we live in this tension of knowing that the battle is won but not yet fully realized. So as we look back on the cross, help us to look forward with anticipation. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.